turn with me again to the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis in chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42. And we're going to begin reading this morning in verse 18. Genesis chapter 42, beginning in verse 18. If you want to use one of the few Bibles provided for you, you'll find this passage on page 36. Page 36, Genesis 42, beginning in verse 18. This is God's Word. Here's what we read. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. And let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress is coming upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. Well, this morning we come to the second part of our study of Genesis 42, 1 through 25. Um, I've entitled these two sermons last week, this week, uh, Band of Brothers. Because these verses are about the work that God is doing in the lives of these 12 sons of Jacob. Uh, The phrase, band of brothers, comes from a Shakespeare play, Henry V. I want you to picture this with me. We have King Henry V speaking to his men just before they rush into the battle of Agincourt. He is leading the English in a major battle against the French in what was known as the Hundred Years' War. The date is October the 25th. It was the day they celebrated as the Feast of Saints Crispin and Crispian. And here is what Henry V says to his soldiers as he seeks to stir them up for battle. He says, This day is called the Feast of Crispian. He that outlives this day and comes safely home will stand a tiptoe when this day is named and rouse himself at the name of Crispian. He that shall see this day and live to old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, Tomorrow is St. Crispian. Then he will strip his sleeve and he will show his scars, and he will say, These wounds I had on Crispin's day. Old men forget, yet all shall be forgot, but he'll remember with advantages the feats that he did on this day. Then shall our names, familiar in his mouth as household words, Harry the king, Bedford and Exeter, Warwick and Talbot, Salisbury and Gloucester, be in their flowing cups freshly remembered. This story shall the good man teach his son, and Crispin Crispian shall ne'er go by from this day to the ending of the world, but we in it shall be remembered. We few, 
we happy few, we band of brothers. For he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves accursed that they were not here. And they will hold their manhoods cheap while any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's day. It's a, a rousing speech. A speech meant to call on men to be noble and heroic. A speech meant to, to call on men to be valiant and bold. The band of brothers that we're reading about in Genesis 42 is the very opposite of this. Now there is Joseph. Joseph who was attacked by his brothers. Joseph who was sold into slavery imprisoned wrongly in Egypt, and now in God's providence, he is the second most powerful man on earth. We have seen much in Joseph that is heroic. We've seen much in Joseph that is noble and valiant. He now holds the keys to bread and life in the midst of this famine. These ten brothers have come to him for food. He recognizes them, but they do not recognize him. And then there's that twelfth brother, Benjamin, the youngest. He is a grown man now, but he is still at home with his father. But as we focus on these ten, we must say that these guys have not been for us models of biblical manhood. Just the opposite. These guys have been, have been models of, of wickedness and foolishness and immorality. There is nothing honorable, nothing valiant, nothing noble about these ten men. Their families were on the brink of starvation. And had it not been for Jacob, their father, they would still be in Canaan, taking no action at all. We saw last week that these men were just looking at one another. Nobody was leading. No one was taking charge. Nobody was doing what needed to be done to care for their families and to protect their own. And now, these ten have come to Egypt. And the irony is thick. Twenty years before, Jacob had sent his 17-year-old boy, Joseph, to these same brothers. They responded by treating him harshly and throwing him into a pit. Now, 20 years later, Jacob is sending the brothers to Joseph. He doesn't know it's Joseph, but he sends his, the brothers to Joseph, and Joseph treats them harshly, and Joseph throws them into a prison, which interestingly is also called in these verses a pit. Now, whereas the brothers had acted jealously, whereas the brothers had acted in anger when they attacked Joseph, Joseph seems to be acting out of a desire to understand what has happened in the lives of his brothers over the last 20 years. Joseph is being driven by this question, have my brothers changed? Are these men the same men that attacked me? Will it be wise? Will it be safe for me to reveal to them who I really am? And through Joseph's actions, God is providentially working to draw these ten brothers to himself. God is leading these foolish men to repentance, where they will become very different than they are now. Picking up the story in verse 18. Go back to verse 18 and let's see it again. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. 
If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined while you, while, where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Now that last phrase is, is that's, that's the, a literal translation, and they did so. But it's clear from the context that it doesn't actually mean that. What it means is they consented. They, were, they humbled themselves in agreement to what Joseph planned. They're not actually doing it yet. That doesn't come for a few more verses. So these ten brothers are now vulnerable. These ten brothers are now helpless. They are completely at the disposal of this Egyptian ruler, Joseph. Joseph has now kept these ten brothers in prison for three days. And when he put them into prison, he had told them that when he let them out, he would let one of them go home. And that one was to bring their youngest brother Benjamin back to him, and that would be proof that they could be trusted. But now he seems to have had a change of heart. He tells them that he's decided to let all of them go home except for one. He is going to let one stay imprisoned. The others may go home, get Benjamin, and bring him back, and then he will trust their word. Now, I have only two points for us this morning, and the first is right here at the beginning. Joseph says to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. In other words, Joseph says to these brothers, My word is good. You can trust me. If you do what I say, if you take this grain, go home, bring your brother Benjamin back, I will keep my end of this bargain. I will keep my promise to you. Your imprisoned brother will be set free. Your lives will be spared, and you will receive the bread you need during these years of famine. Joseph says, even though he's an Egyptian ruler, he says to them, you can trust me, and he gives this reason, for I fear God. Now, he uses the generic word for God. He uses a word for the, that can refer to the true God, but it can also refer to the gods of the Egyptians. And so he hasn't given himself away. He's not telling them who he is yet. But the point is a crucial one. He's saying, you can trust me. Why can you trust me? Because I fear God. Church, here's the first point I want us to see. The foundation of integrity is the fear of God. The foundation of integrity is the fear of God. Joseph is not saying, I'm going to keep my word, and you can know I'm going to keep my word because I fear you. No, he doesn't fear these ten brothers anymore. He's over them in power and authority. He can have them all beheaded if he, if he wants to. Nor is he saying that he can be trusted to keep his word because of any inherent goodness in himself. No, Joseph says that he will keep his word because he believes and reveres and esteems a God who is above him. One who has authority over him. He fears one who has power over him. One who will not let his unfaithfulness go unpunished. Now, I want you to imagine with me for a moment a man being tempted. This man went out for a jog. And as he jogged, the sun began to go down. 
It's now dark. He's out on the streets of the neighborhood, and there's nobody else around him. And as he's jogging, he comes upon a car parked on the side of the street. The car is unlocked, and sitting on the passenger seat is several stacks of fresh, crisp $100 bills. He looks in the car, and he sees the money. He looks around. There's no one in sight. If he dares to take the money, no one will know about it. He has gloves on because of the chill air. There will be no fingerprints left. He will not be found out if he takes this money. He begins to think of all the good he could do with the thousands of dollars just inches away from him. He thinks of the bills that he needs to pay. He thinks of Junior's teeth that need braces. He thinks of that friend that he has who is raising money for a transplant. He, he thinks of all that he could do if he had this money. What will he do? Well, imagine for me for a moment that this man is an atheist. Or, or maybe he's just not religious. He doesn't really think about God. He doesn't care about God. In this moment, there's no thoughts of God in his heart or in his soul. He doesn't believe in a judgment day. He doesn't believe in a place called hell. He lives for today. He lives for making the most of this life. He assumes that when he dies, that'll be the end. And so right now, he looks around, and there's nobody around. He'll never be caught. He can do a great deal of good with this amount of money. Now, Imagine with me a second man in the exact same situation who is a true believer. This man fears God. He knows that though nobody else sees him, God sees him. And that this very moment he is before the eyes of a watching creator. He knows that God hates all sin, including stealing that even made the top ten. He thinks about the mighty wrath of God poured out in hell on those who have committed lesser sins than this. He thinks about the mighty wrath of God poured out on Christ at the cross because of Christians who committed sins like this. Thinking about God and how God gave His Son Jesus to care for His soul, will He not now trust God to provide for His needs? The man thinks, after all that God has done for me, will I now spurn him? Right now, before God's watching eyes, will I trample his command? Will I spit in his face, knowing that he can see me? Will I reach in the car, and will I take the money, and will I make a run for it? Now, sometimes an atheist does the right thing. And sometimes a Christian does the wrong thing. But in general, which one of these two men has the best grounds and basis for doing the right thing? Of these two men, which one has the best foundation for jogging away, leaving the money in the car, doing the right thing? And the answer, of course, is the one who fears God. You see, a healthy belief in an all-powerful, all-seeing, all-righteous, holy, holy, holy God is the basis of integrity. 
And so church, search your own heart. Do you fear God? Do you know what it is to tremble before Him? Do you have big thoughts of who He is? Or is He small and insignificant in your sight? If God is small and insignificant in your sight, it is not because He is small and insignificant. It is because you are wrong. It is because you are blind to the truth. What do the Scriptures say? The Scriptures say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 1.7 If you do not fear the Lord, all of your knowledge is built on a shaky foundation. Without the fear of the Lord, your knowledge will damn you. Psalm 111.10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you do not have a healthy, accurate view and respect for God, you will never be truly wise. Why has mankind plummeted into so many sins? Why is none righteous, no, not one? Why do none understand? Why do none seek after God? Why have all turned aside, becoming worthless? Why do none do good, not even one? Why are our throats an open grave, our mouths full of curses and bitterness, our feet swift to shed blood? Why, according to Romans 3, is the way of peace not known in humanity? The answer that Paul gives, Romans 3.18, is there is no fear of God before their eyes. At the bottom of all of humanity's wickedness is this reality. Humanity does not fear God. We do not tremble before Him as we ought. We do not remember that He is a consuming fire. We look at the sun, this blazing ball of fire in our sky. Scientists tell us that if we were to get within one million miles of the sun, we would be instantly incinerated. Within one million miles, we would be instantly incinerated. Now if that's the glory of the sun, how much more the one who made the sun? We experience hurricanes, we experience tornadoes and earthquakes and tsunamis, and we see the power of God in these things. And then how quickly do we forget? How quickly do we go back to treating God as our, as our chum, as our friend, as our pal, forgetting who He is and what He is capable of, and that we will one day stand before Him and wonder? How quickly do people in this culture assume that God will never hurt a fly? Although he causes the deaths of millions of them every day. One glimpse of hell, and maybe we would think very differently. Or even one glimpse of heaven, and we would think differently. To see in heaven how God uses His power, His tremendous power to bless those whom He has saved and make them holy. To see how God uses His power not only to curse evil, but to bless righteousness. You remember what A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It will affect everything, including your integrity. Can you be trusted? Will you be a person of your word? 
Will you be a person of honesty and love and faithfulness? Well, it all goes down to this. What do you believe about God? And what place does He have in your heart? Like standing before the Grand Canyon or like standing safely in a cave while a tremendous hurricane goes by, we as Christians need to learn the joy of fearing God. The Bible even talks that way, the joy of fearing God. The joy of knowing that we are safe in Him through Christ, and yet we still ought to tremble. We still ought to have a holy reverence for Him. We ought to be able to say with Joseph, I keep my promises because I fear God. I know the one who's over me. I know the one who has authority over me. He's not to be treated lightly, though he is to be loved and enjoyed. So that's our first truth. The fear of God is the foundation of integrity. Now, let's see the second by reading again verses 21 and 22. Look again at verses 21 and 22. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. And so we have this conversation between the ten brothers as they consider what's happening to them. As they consider the the trial that has come their way, their consciences are pricked, and they're wondering, why is God doing this to us? Why is God treating us this way? And immediately their consciences are alert. You know what you deserve. You know what you did 20 years ago to that brother of yours. You know the lie that you are continuing to live in, claiming that some beast attacked and killed him. They say, in truth, you see that at the beginning of verse 21, in truth we are guilty. Surely we are guilty. Their own consciences are bringing conviction heavy upon them. They know they have no right to complain about what is happening to them in these moments. They call themselves guilty concerning their brother. They remember the distress that they saw They remember how Joseph had begged and pleaded with them out of the pit and as they were selling him into slavery, and yet they would not listen. Reuben, who by the way was a very weak leader when all this was happening 20 years ago, he now steps up and and serves to echo their consciences. He basically says, I told you this would happen. I told you this is what would happen if we treated Joseph that way, and now God is bringing judgment upon us consciences of these men are now activated and they're bearing down upon them their consciences are compelling them to repent to humble themselves because of what they've done so Mount Hermon here's the second truth I want us to see this morning our consciences are a gift from God to compel us to do what is right our consciences are a gift from God to compel us to do what is right. What do you believe about your conscience? Why do you have one? Why did God give it to you? What role is your conscience supposed to play in your life? 
I want to read you something. I want you to listen very closely because I want us to be like this. This is J.I. Packer writing about the Puritans, those Christians of old, and how they thought about the conscience. Listen to this. He says, The concern which was really supreme in the hearts and minds of the people called Puritans was a concern about God, a concern to know Him truly, to serve Him rightly, and so to glorify Him and to enjoy Him. But because this was so, they were in fact very deeply concerned about conscience. For they held that the conscience was the mental organ in men through which God brought His Word to bear upon them. Nothing, therefore, in their estimation was more important for any man than that his conscience should be enlightened, instructed, purged, and kept clean. To them, there could be no real spiritual understanding, nor any genuine godliness, except for as a man exposed and enslaved his conscience to God's Word. You see, God created every one of us with a conscience. The conscience is like a courtroom in our hearts and minds that is meant to prepare us for the day we will stand in the ultimate courtroom, the throne of God. Our conscience is God's court within us. This is how Paul speaks. Go home, read 2 Corinthians 1.12. By the way, Paul talks a lot about the conscience. Uh, in working on this this week, I realized we've said very little about the conscience in past years at Mount Hermon. It's all over the New Testament, especially in the letters of Paul. Keep looking for it now, how often that word conscience appears in your New Testament. Paul speaks of the conscience as God's court within us. It's what Luther meant when he stood trial and said that to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. So what role does the conscience play in our lives? Well, picture a court. In a courtroom, there is a register, one who keeps track of the charges. So also, your conscience is a register in your heart and mind. It keeps track of your wrongs. It keeps track of the things you've done. And it will not let you forget the sins you have committed. In a courtroom, there are witnesses. So also, your conscience bears witness against you. Your conscience reminds you of the things you, you did and the things you should have done and did not do. The conscience is your inward prosecutor. The conscience accuses you of things that you have done of your guilt before God. The conscience is a judge in your heart and mind. It can declare whether you are innocent of this charge or whether you are guilty of this charge. Church, it is a wonderful thing when our conscience is clear. Paul was able to say this. Paul said, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in this world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. In other words, Paul boasts in the grace of God, saying that as he thought back to his time with the church in Corinth, he could honestly say that he had lived with simplicity and godly sincerity towards them. 
He says, I can say with honesty that we strove not to be a burden to you, that we truly loved you. He said, my conscience is clear on these matters. My conscience is declaring me innocent. It is a wonderful thing when we can say that our consciences are clear. It's very different. It's a terrible feeling when our consciences are declaring us guilty. Richard says that Richard Sibbs says that when this happens, our consciences play not only judge, but even executioner. Our consciences begin to bring grief and misery and inward suffering upon us for all that we've done. When our consciences are against us, our hearts become heavy. We feel like we can't escape what we've done. Every moment of joy is suddenly tainted with this memory of this crime that we've committed against God. This is where Joseph's brothers are now. Their consciences are bringing back against them what's been nagging at them for 20 years. That They attacked their brother, sold him into slavery, and have been lying about it to their father all this time. Maybe that's where some of you are this morning. Maybe your conscience is weighing on you. Maybe you try and you try to act like that something you've done is no big deal. That something you've done is, is, is not worth talking about. Maybe you can hide it. Maybe you can ignore it. And yet it's tearing you up on the inside. The purpose of this, this is God's gift to you. The conscience is God's gift to you to torment you, to bring you to repentance, to bring you to humility, to bring you to Christ. It is a gift of love. It is the courtroom in your heart today that if you will listen to it, it will prepare you to stand well in the courtroom before God on the last day. Now, because our conscience is a part of who we are, it is fallen. It is tainted by sin. In other words, our consciences in this world are not perfect. If you fill your heart and mind with the stuff of this world, your conscience will become worldly. Your conscience can begin to excuse you for things that ought to be accusing you of, and it can begin to accuse you for things that ought to be excusing you of. And so we have people in this world who may be a man who has a clear conscience as he fights to legalize abortion, but his conscience feels guilty when he fails to recycle. He's got his priorities mixed up. He's got his right and wrong mixed up in the courtroom of his mind. You see, if the Holy Spirit doesn't give light to our consciences, our consciences will get mixed up and twisted and they will fail us. And so our consciences must be taught by the Word of God. Only then will our consciences be the inward preacher that we need When our consciences are being taught the Word of God, they can become powerful instruments in God's hands for our good. When the Spirit takes a hold of our consciences, wonderful things can happen. William Finner said it this way, The conscience is a preacher to tell us our duty both towards God and towards man. Yes, the conscience is a powerful preacher. It exhorts us, it urges us, it provokes us. Yes, the conscience is the most powerful preacher there can be. It can cause the stoutest and stubbornest heart under heaven to begin to quake now and then. Conscience, when joined in commission with God's own spirit, can instruct us in the way we should walk. 
So also, the spirit and the conscience, when they are resisted, I'm sorry, when you, so that the spirit and the conscience are resisted or obeyed together, grieved or delighted together. In other words, when you have submitted your conscience to the word of God, so that your conscience is either convicting you or leading you in the way of the word, then to disobey your conscience is to disobey God. To obey your conscience is to follow God. The conscience becomes that part of you that helps you apply God's word to your lives. Finner says, we cannot sin against conscience without also sinning against God's spirit. We cannot check our own conscience without also checking and quenching the Holy Spirit of God. Mount Hermon, there is no greater blessing in this life than a clean conscience before God. When you are walking by faith, when you are obeying Christ, conscience is your best friend. When you begin to contemplate doing something you shouldn't do, your conscience begins to gently urge you. It's like a kind friend telling you, don't go that way, don't don't do that. When you begin going further into sin, your conscience gets louder. It yells at you. It pleads with you. It admonishes you. You know you shouldn't be going that way. It calls you back to God's path. Every one of us in this room who is now a believer in Christ was brought to Christ through our conscience. How did repentance happen in your life? Was it not your conscience awaking you to sin? Do you remember that feeling of guilt that you had at that moment when Christ was working in your soul? How for a few moments you actually seemed to feel the burden and weight of your sin? How you felt your conscience like a, like a courtroom in your head declaring guilty, guilty, guilty. And yet it was through that that God led you to the Savior. It was through that that God brought you to the place where your conscience could now say, you've been forgiven, you've been purified, now let's follow this Savior. And so we ought to be thankful for conscience. And we ought to seek today to have a clear conscience before God. Through confession of sin, through repentance, through seeking to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. As we come to the Lord's table, let me close this way. Among the many, many glorious gifts that Christ purchased for us by his death on the cross was this gift. Christ purchased for us a good conscience. Because of our fallen nature, our consciences used to be evil. Our consciences used to accuse us for things we ought to have been excused for and used to excuse us for things we ought to have been accused of. But it's no longer that way because of Christ. Because of Christ's perfect life, because of His death on the cross, God is now just to come into our lives through the Holy Spirit and to cleanse our consciences, giving us pure consciences that will lead us well. Listen to Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In other words, here is one of the great effects of Christ's cross. Here is one of the great reasons that Jesus came and died. He loved us enough 
that He came to give us a pure conscience through which we could be led into holiness and into righteousness. Church, Jesus Christ went to the cross for this. Don't waste your conscience. Don't ignore your conscience. Don't treat your conscience as something small. Don't quench it. Don't seek to get away from it. Be like Paul in Acts 24, 16. He said, I always take pains to have a clean conscience before God and man. Can you say that? Can you say, I always take pains to have a clean conscience before God and man? Christ died to make us holy. Sorry. That didn't scare everybody. It scared me a little bit. Christ died to make us holy. Here is an essential way in which Christ makes us holy. He works through our consciences. So let us learn to submit our consciences to God's word. Let us listen to our consciences. Let's keep our consciences tender before God by not hardening ourselves against our consciences. And on the day we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, we will fall on our faces in worship and joy and with unimaginable happiness. And we will thank Jesus for this great gift that helped bring us safely to him.